Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday afternoon this week at 2.30 on May 24th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Sarah Cliff of Vox.com in possibly her last podcast for a while as she awaits the birth of our first junior podcaster. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hey, Julie. After our news chat, we'll have our latest Bill of the Month feature with KHN's Liz Zabo, who has the story of some very expensive orthopedic screws. And then we'll come back and do our extra credits. Okay, it was quite a week for President Trump and his health care agenda. On Tuesday, just before he spoke at a big anti-abortion gala dinner here in Washington, the administration dropped its new proposed regulation to alter the federal family planning program, Title X as we know it, in some very big ways, primarily by making it impossible for Planned Parenthood, the program's single biggest provider, to continue to participate. And despite what we heard earlier, and I think what we talked about, there's a very big difference between the regulation first issued by the Reagan administration, which was known as the gag rule, and this one. The original rule upheld by the Supreme Court in 1991 would have forbidden Title X grant recipients from even mentioning abortion as an option to women with unintended pregnancies. This new rule continues to allow abortion counseling if the woman requests it, but forbids Title X providers from actually referring a pregnant patient for an abortion. Planned Parenthood and much of the medical community say that's a distinction without a difference. Why do you think that they wrote it that way? Were they trying to do to, to make a political statement? I think the really big difference between this proposal and current regulation is that it requires that there be not just a kind of fuzzy financial separation, but a hard financial and physical separation between Title X activities, which are things like contraceptive counseling, uh, you know, physical exams, cancer screenings, STD testing, and abortions. And the way that organizations like Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers who receive Title X funds usually did things is they sort of kept careful track of. They might have had a common waiting room, a, one receptionist, one medical record, uh, and one office, but they would say, okay, you know, 10% of this receptionist's time is on the abortion side of the house and 90% is on the Title 10 or whatever the right number is. And they would prorate that person's salary. They would prorate the cost of the waiting room, the cost of the exam rooms, the cost of the electronic health record. And what this new rule says is, no, 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 everything has to be completely separate. You can't have any shared resources be they physical or personnel, electronic. And so what that means is that it makes it extremely hard for organizations like Planned Parenthood to provide both kinds of services. I think it is not impossible. They could, for example, split into sort of two companies and have the abortion part of Planned Parenthood and the Title X part of Planned Parenthood. We should point out that only half of Planned Parenthood's actually provide abortion. Half of them only do family planning and the services. Yeah, I mean, abortion is not a huge percentage of the work that they do, but they do have facilities that do both. And clearly, it's very core to their mission. And I think it's also core to their mission that 
Uh, they see themselves as a provider that is providing women with a full spectrum of services, which include abortion. And so they are very against splitting things up. But I think people talk about it as if like there's no way that Planned Parenthood could continue to receive these funds. I think there is a way, but it would require them to really rethink the way that they deliver services and how their kind of uh, business operates. Well, Planned Parenthood is the one that says there's no way they would continue to. Yeah, I think, um, but I think would and could are different. Yes. And that's, I mean, but but obviously the goal of this is to, to as, as I think I, the verb I used once was evict Planned Parenthood from the federal family planning program. And I think for me, like the most instructive thing, you know, since it's been so long since we had this kind of regulation is to look at Texas because they've been going through kind of a micro version of this fight with their um, – women's health program that used to be funded through Medicaid, I believe lost its Medicaid program when they decided to exclude, uh, lost its Medicaid Medicaid funding funding when they decided to exclude abortion providers like Planned Parenthood. The research we've seen so far in Texas is a, it shows a decline, ever since this has happened, is a decline in women getting contraceptives and an increase in births in Texas among the population that uses this program. So I think you know, that is what we've seen happen in Texas over the past few years. And it does not seem super far-fetched to expect kind of similar outcomes um, as we see a more national version of this happen. I think one of the things, if you start looking at, you know, where Planned Parenthood is in many communities, it is kind of the only provider where you can get birth control. And I think, like you're both saying, like, that becomes a really tough choice for Planned Parenthood who sees abortion as pretty core to their mission about, you know, do you continue, do you keep your doors open and like continue serving these women? Do you need, um, you know, one of the things I'm still not totally clear on is how much they need those Title Ten dollars to survive versus if they can rejigger things to kind of get by without them, if they're going to get like an outpouring of donations from supporters. Um, so it still feels a little bit uncertain, but I think Texas really shows us the best research on what we might expect from these new regulations. Yeah, we, we should um, uh, point out that, that those original regulations, the Reagan-era regulations, were fought in court through the all the all literally the entire Bush 1 administration. They did actually take effect, but for like a month. So I don't think anybody ever really, I don't think they ever got enforced, even though they were technically in force between you know, judicial stays. They actually huh. existed on paper. I did not know for, that. Yes, so. for like a month. I went back and checked because I covered this at the time. <laughs> There's also, you know, if you even take Planned Parenthood out of the equation, this requirement that so there are two things about what uh, Title X providers under this regulation can counsel women about. So one thing, the current rule says that Title X providers have to tell women about the full spectrum of reproductive health options available to them, including abortion. So when someone comes in and they have a pregnancy that they don't you know, they have a health risk or they just want to terminate the pregnancy for some other reason, the Title X provider is supposed to tell them about that option. This rule says that they do not. And so that opens the door for some Title X, uh, you know, grantees who might be against abortion, who might not want to tell women about it. So, you know, that is one change that women might uh, go in and might not be told that abortion is an option that might be appropriate for them, even if Perhaps they have a life-threatening health problem with their pregnancy or something else where most medical providers would mention abortion to them. This is one of my big questions. Would it open the door? And it, it would seem to open the door to um, 
to Title X grantees who don't offer. I think it, it's, the rule actually says you can offer only one method of birth control and still qualify for Title X t- funds, which could mean, you know, non non-artificial birth control, the rhythm method, for example. It also says, while it bans referring for abortion, it requires referral for prenatal care to women with unintended pregnancy. So it's literally kind of flipping the current rules on their head. And you mentioned the political impact uh, uh, when you uh, brought this up. And this this was clearly a political act. I (laughs) mean, nobody's been shy about it. Timed exactly with the president going to the Susan B. Anthony group and giving a big speech. And it's really intended to throw some red meat to this um, religious right base. Ahead of the midterm elections, they have not been able to point to a lot of big political wins for for that group. And this is a lot about shoring up that support. Folks, uh, that sector may be thinking twice about their support for the president based on maybe some of the scandals that had come out or who knows. Um, But this is something they can point to as we accomplished what what you asked for on this front. They can they'll probably spin it as or we're defunding Planned Parenthood, which they tried so many times to do through Congress and we're not able to do, even though this is a little more complicated than that. It is. And I actually, to the the answer of Sarah's question about can they do without the Title X funds, they get far fewer funds from Title X than they do from Medicaid. And Medicaid was what they were trying to sort of get, you know. Got through the the bills in Congress. What I think is interesting is this this clearly has the potential to, to energize that sector. But I think it could also energize the other side and spark a backlash, not just among the left and and progressives who may be more mobilized to defend um, women's health access under under the Trump administration. But I thought it was interesting that uh, Planned Parenthood's Republican advisory board came out with a very strong statement against this rule change, saying that it was government overreach into people's private health care decisions. So, um, that, that's a whole other angle of criticism that, that could come up again. Well, that was that was sort of my original question. Why do you think they, they wrote it without, you know, not taking sort of the most dramatic? I think Margot's right, operationally, having to separate any kind of abortion service from any kind of Title X funded service is probably the most difficult thing. But from a PR point of view, the idea that that, that medical professionals could not mention a legal procedure as an option, which is what the Reagan era um, proposal did, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court. I was a little bit surprised that that wasn't in there. And then I started to wonder, well, maybe they didn't do that because now it's harder for the other side to argue. Maybe they were trying to sort of dampen what they knew would be a backlash from the the, sort of the pro-women's health uh, reproductive rights side. Um, And and, I mean, it could be also legal concerns. There have already been lawsuits filed. Although, as I said, that would that that in particular was upheld by the Supreme Court. Right, right, right. um, And 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 the groups have been kind of, you know, they want to they want a longer look at it. We've obviously only seen it for a couple of days. Um, And and they say, you know, you can't sue until it's a final rule anyway, because you don't have standing because nothing has happened yet. So it it might be a while. But, um, you know, it's interesting. The Supreme Court is a very different place than it was in 1991. But Anthony Kennedy was there in 1991, <laughs> and he voted with the majority to uphold the rule. So hard to hard to know what would happen if they wanted to sue again. So I'm sure we will we will see more of this um, upcoming. Uh, the other big Republican win this week was final passage in Congress of the so-called right to try bill. This is a libertarian back proposal that so far passed in 40 states and now will become law nationwide when the president signs it. The idea is to give people with terminal illness 
increases easier access to experimental drugs outside of the regular FDA process that was set up during the peak of the AIDS epidemic. Patient groups and a lot of former FDA commissioners have been dubious about this proposal. Even current FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb has been, shall we say, unenthusiastically supportive. How did this get to be such a big thing? Well, I think, I mean, I've seen it come up over the past few years with just, you know, these individual patient stories, which I think can often be quite compelling. And, you know, I think there has been this push that I've been watching. It's a kind of snowballed, like you said, 40 states passing their own laws before they get to this point. And I I think a lot of those have just happened in recent years as well. Oh, yeah. I think it's only like the last four or five years. Right. A decade ago, I don't know if there are any of these laws. And I think it, it kind of speaks to, you know, in health policy, the power of personal anecdote of, you know, individuals who, you know, are dealing with really difficult situations and are asking for what they see as a solution. That seems to me to be, you know, one of the key driving forces behind why this passed in 40 states and why it is now passing through Congress. And yet one of the big criticisms, you know, from the from people who think it's, who question, I mean, I don't think anybody thinks it's on its face sort of a that it will hurt people. They're worried that it will give them false hope because they say it's the FDA now has these, you know, what's called a compassionate use policy that when you have a, a, a terminal disease and there's no treatment available for you and you can't get into a clinical trial, um, they will allow experimental drugs to be made available to you, but they can't order the drug company to do it. Mostly the, the, the block has been at the drug company level. They either don't have enough of the drug if it's that early in the process or they're afraid um, that if something bad happens, it would reflect badly on the drug. I mean, it, this is this is not so much about the drug companies themselves, and I think that's where a lot of the, the opposition comes from. But I guess it looks good in an election year, right? And I I, I found it interesting how the FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb has sort of thrown some cold water on some of these heated emotional arguments around around this bill and saying, look, people already can access these drugs legally through existing law, and those drugs have not proven effective. They haven't really worked. Um, so sure, go ahead. I will carry out what Congress wants. But um, he, he's sort of counter, countering that narrative. Yeah, he's been he's been careful. Because uh, but and yet this I mean, this got into the State of the Union. The president called for it. I, and a couple times since the president has mentioned it, it seems like something that he would like to be able to sign. Yeah, well, I get I think it's something that Mike Pence has been pushing. So it's it's, it's certainly something that you know they can go out and say that that they got accomplished, um, and and boy, it was it, there was a lot of back and forth. Um, who was it who wrote? Oh, it was Page who wrote the story about how the Democrats actually, by sort of sitting out, ended up with a bill that they liked probably less than the original bill as it as it went back and forth, and and you know lawmakers tried to figure out what to do. That that this the the bill that's going to the president is a slightly broader version um, of the bill that the I guess the House originally passed, um, and and that it's that's the Democrats sort of decided not to engage. Uh, and then they they got up and opposed I think it's the this. Senate originally passed it. Right. Well, the bill, yes, the bill that's going, right, the, the House passed a bill, the Senate passed a different, or I guess the Senate went first, but it's the Senate bill that's going, it's the broader yeah. Senate bill that's going to the president, um, whereas the Democrats, if they probably argued, might have been able to get the House bill passed, but... It is what it is. Um, So we have a couple of nerd reports out this week, as I call them, one from CDC's National Center for Health Statistics on insurance coverage and kind of what turns into a companion piece from the Congressional Budget Office. Um, Let's start with the insurance report. Margot, you wrote about that. What did it find? 
So what it found is that last year, uh, 2017, <laughs> uh, the uninsured rate basically did not change. So, you know, let's go back in our time machine. Uh, 2017, Trump is president. He said, said a lot of inflammatory things about the Affordable Care Act. We had a big congressional fight to uh, attempt to repeal it. That was not successful. Uh, there were some efforts to undermine advertising and outreach um, in that first open enrollment period and then, you know, again later in the year, which probably more affects 2018. Um, and it looks like all of that didn't really make a big difference. Um, of course, the uninsured rate did not go down, but it also did not go up. Um, and I think, you know, it speaks to a theme. Which is we, sort of not what we'd heard anecdotally. There yeah, and there, were, some... there had been some earlier surveys that were a little bit smaller that had shown a little bit of an uptick in the uninsured rate. And this, you know, I should say this government survey is very large. It's very highly regarded. They really sort of double check everything. And I think these are numbers that we can feel pretty confident are as close to the truth as, as we're going to get from a Yeah, survey. we should point out there are two main government surveys, the, the, uh, the one that the Census Bureau does and that one comes out in um, – and usually in June. September. No, in September. That comes out in the fall. And then this one from the CDC that usually comes out um, about now. <laughs> um, but I, there was one finding under the hood of that top number that I've just described that I think is important. And I think it's something that we're really going to have to keep our eye on. So we knew uh, over the last few years that states that expanded their Medicaid program under Obamacare had a much lower uninsured rate and, you know, in some ways, a larger decline in the uninsured rate than states that did not expand their Medicaid programs. But what this report shows is kind of a growing divide. So it's not just that everyone held steady. States that did not expand Medicaid got a little worse, a little, you know, a few more people uninsured in those states. States that expanded Medicaid actually got a little bit better. Their uninsured rate came down. And so that growing divergence, I think, is something, you know, we've talked about this before, but there are a lot of ways in which policies in the Trump administration are letting states go their own way. And there certainly are states that are not interested in the Affordable Care Act programs and are, you know, taking some steps that may weaken some of the availability of insurance, uh, the, you know, generosity of Medicaid coverage and other things. And so we may see more of that pulling away. And I would say that the way to think about those groups, those are the groups that um, the CDC chose, is not so much about like Medicaid or no Medicaid, but to think about Medicaid expansion as sort of a proxy for overall enthusiasm for, you know, the Affordable Care Act in particular and insurance coverage expansion uh, in general. And so like the states that are really trying hard to cover everyone are making some progress. The states that seem less engaged in that effort are um, experiencing some backsliding. And we'll see uh, what the numbers look like for next year. Um, my sense is that 2018, we're going to see an increase in the uninsured rate. There are a lot of early indications that there have been some changes since uh, this report was put together. Yeah, the other interesting thing in that report is that it, there was a very small but statistically significant increase in the number of non-poor and non-near-poor people who are uninsured, i.e. middle-class people. Um, one, you know, we've, we saw some drop-off. I mean, we've seen statistics that show drop-off in the individual market among people who are not subsidized. Now, there's some subsidized people in that. Um, it's just the, the, the way they measure sort of people's income. Um, but I'm, you know, wondering if, if going going into the fall, that's going to be an issue for people who would like insurance but have been priced out of the market. 
And the, what Margo was saying about um, the gap between expansion and non-expansion states now being the widest it has been since 2013 when, when the expansion became available, I, I think is interesting and fits with some of the findings from these other um, groups that have been measuring the uninsured rate. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the Commonwealth report from a little bit back, which split by political affiliation and showed that the rate... Uh, of people uninsured who identify as Republicans is going up a lot more than those who identify as Democrats. And that fits with the divide in the states. Most states that expanded Medicaid are Democrat controlled, although not entirely. Yeah, not all. Not all. Which is which is what's Mm -hmm. sort of interesting about about the way this is shaking out. I mean, the other the other report that we got was from the Congressional Budget Office, which gave us sort of uh, an updated set of numbers about the impact they think the changes that have been made thus far will have um, both on federal spending, but also on the uninsured rate. They they talked about um, uh, the the impact of getting rid of the individual mandate. And yes. that's it's pretty much what we thought, but it's, it's pretty, still a lot of people. It's significant. So we're looking at, you know, and this has kind of been true in every report we've seen from CBO, from academic think tanks. Fewer people with health insurance and higher premiums. Um, I think Margot is more of the expert after her very um, in-depth tweeting of the CBO report, which I always look forward <laughs> to. But it is, and I just shamelessly retweet. Yeah, exactly. But it is that's my know, brand. I yeah. just I live I live tweet the CBO report. I mean, everyone's got to do. So you have captive. I'm sure our listeners are also captive followers. But we, you know, we are looking at fewer people. With health insurance, I think it's interesting. One of the things I get into a little bit is the role of short-term plans and association plans, so that's going to offset some of the coverage loss, but some of those plans are going to be so junky that they don't even count as health insurance. Um, so this wasn't, I know... And that those are, and also that the, the, the flight of healthy people into those plans will then raise premiums. Right. Yeah. So I think we're looking at a 15% premium increase next year with 10 percentage points of that being due in CBO's view to the repeal of the individual mandate. So that's, I mean, that's significant when you think of it on top of the premium increases we've seen in recent years as well. So that's um, that, that's a big change that is coming. And, you know, when you think of that population, you mentioned, Julie, um, the population, the non-poor kind of middle class buying their own insurance on the marketplace, they're the ones who really stand to bear the brunt of those premiums. So you could see that particular group seeing another increase in uninsured rates because they're not being subsidized. They don't have kind of some kind of cap in terms of how much they're going to have to pay. So these are some nerdy things. Let me enumerate them. Um, so three of them. Uh, one is that they do take account of the effects of short-term and association health plans entering the market. But because the rules for those are not finalized, they're only proposed, they only estimate 50% of what they think will happen. So it's this weird estimate where they're kind of splitting the difference because they feel like there's a 50-50 chance that they will be finalized in the form that they were proposed. <laughs> so uh, we this estimate does not take into account all of those effects. Um, the other thing is that there is a pretty big reassessment of the CBO's view of the individual mandate that's sort of buried in this report. And this is something that the CBO has been telling us for some time was coming. Uh, they have decided that they have overestimated the effectiveness of the individual mandate in bringing people into the market and into Medicaid as well. And they think their previous estimates of how many people would leave insured insured status as a result of its repeal were overstated. So this has been a long time coming, and um, 
part of the reason I think that the Republicans in Congress were so eager to include individual mandate repeal in their tax reform bill is because CBO told them that this change was coming. And uh, for complicated reasons, uh, its old estimate meant that more money would be saved from the federal deficit under the old estimate. So they kind of, uh, I like to think of it right, as like- because more people would drop insurance and right. therefore they wouldn't get subsidies. So they sort of like bought the individual mandate repeal on sale. Uh, <laughs> Although before a steep price increase. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting, though, is that I think I'm, there's I saw this discussion and I've heard this discussion, too, is that part of what's going on is that because the mandate was actually in existence for five years, more people are sort of used to mm-hmm. the idea that they should have insurance and therefore fewer people will drop. So that that's my that was my third oh. nerdy thing that I wanted to mention. I think it's really interesting and it's sort of it's really drawing more on behavioral economics mm-hmm. than the kind of classic economic model. So I think the way a lot of people think about it is the individual mandate is a financial penalty. If you don't buy insurance, you have to pay this much and then you're kind of weighing, okay, insurance costs this much, the penalty is this much, how much is the insurance worth to me? Is it worth kind of covering the the split? And what I think they're saying is that actually part of why people bought insurance with an individual mandate was because the individual mandate sort of establishes a norm that having insurance is the right thing to do. It's most people do it. It's the responsible thing to do. It's the law that you're supposed to do it. And what CBO says in this new estimate is that that is going to sort of persist in people's minds. So uh, they say taking away the mandate after having it be there for five years is different than never having had it. So if there had never been a mandate, there uh, might have been many more uninsured people now. But because we've had it for five years and now we're taking it away, uh, maybe there'll be some kind of persistent muscle memory of like, oh, I probably should have insurance even though there's no there's no penalty. Not just nerdy, but metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like you said, they're also saying that it wasn't as effective as they once assumed because it wasn't high enough for people to make that cost benefit analysis and, and right the penalty wasn't the high penalty enough. wasn't right. high enough it was it was um, and there were broad exemptions that people could could wiggle out of it mm-hmm. well they also estimated a very big effect of the individual mandate on Medicaid enrollment and I think that's part of what they were rethinking too so it's you know those are people that were actually not subject to a penalty but there was a view people don't really know what income category they fit into the law says you're supposed to get insurance so you go and you see what's available then you find out oh I could get like Medicaid insurance for free and they thought like a lot of people had signed up that way and you know clearly they still think that some people had and they will continue to because of this you know prevailing norm now but you know maybe not as many but that's why they thought that the tax bill would save so much money because they thought a lot of people on Medicaid would not sign up for insurance at all and then they wouldn't have to subsidize them. That's right. Well, speaking of Medicaid, um, I want to update a couple of Medicaid stories we've talked about in previous weeks. Um, First, Virginia, where there is a new Democratic governor, although his predecessor was also Democrat, but a much smaller Republican majority in the legislature. And it looked like Virginia might finally join the states that have expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And it looked like it might happen this week when the legislature was coming back for a special session to talk about the budget. But apparently it's not. What the heck is going on in Virginia? Anybody? I don't know. If we could figure out the answer to that, we'd be some highly paid political consultants. Um, It just seems like they can't quite get it across the finish line at this point. And I think it's kind of, you know, Virginia seems to be one of the last kind of high income states, you know, not not the northernmost by any mean, but like one of the last states with a Democratic governor that has been unable to push forward on Medicaid expansion. 
I think one of the things that seems to be both moving it forward and tripping it up is that now that work requirements are kind of in the mix and something we know the Trump administration is open to, those are being put into the de- into the debate as you know a way to bring Republicans on board. Um, one of the things that's been most interesting for me is to watch how advocates you know manage the. Virginia situation, because I've seen some Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion advocates, because I think there is they certainly don't want to endorse a work requirement, but it does put them in kind of an interesting place. If that seems to be the only way to move it forward, do you go for that and hope you get enough of a majority to repeal it in a few years? Do you think that's, you know, are you letting perfect be enemy of the good if you go for a very clean Medicaid expansion? Um, but it it just seems it seems like it keeps inching up to passing. It reminds me a little bit of I was watching when I was watching like Kansas get pretty close to getting to a veto proof majority on their Medicaid expansion. And like it's a for for healthcare nerds, these are like nail biter Medicaid expansions. Remember in um, Montana when the when the one oh, yeah. state legislator accidentally voted the wrong way? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it, it is not the first or last state to come within one or two votes. It is luckily not a state doing it by accidental vote. Um, but yeah, they just can't seem to quite get there. And I kind of wonder if it's going to just have to wait till there's a Democratic majority in in the Virginia legislature to actually make this happen. Boy, and then and and it was a it was only a a, a drawing. What did they 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 drew lots by film canister to yeah, decide mean, whether the Republicans or the Democrats rem- would have the majority. It's a good reminder of how much for healthcare state elections and state politics matters so much. Like if you just had a seat in the other direction. You know, you're talking about 400,000 people being eligible for this Medicaid expansion, that those elections really, really matter for for Medicaid expansion. And it seems likely that at least some kind of vote on it has to happen in the next few weeks because uh, they have to pass a state budget or the uh, state State government shuts down. down. (laughs) So a budget with or without Medicaid has to pass in the next few days. And if I can just roll this back. Is it June 1st? I thought it was July 1st. July 1st. I said next few weeks. Oh, next few weeks. I just wanted to roll it back into nerdy CBO talk and just say that one other assumption Mm -hmm. that the CBO has uh, and they continue to have in this most recent estimate is they assume that more states will expand Medicaid over time. So, you know, I don't know. They're just the CBO. Who knows if, if they if they have the right political consultants that we don't have. But uh, I think there is a view that uh, this is a good deal for a lot of states. And, you know, this is going to be sort of slow but steady progress. And in some ways, I feel like Virginia, even though they're kind of inching up and then backing away, they kind of embody the mm-hmm. probably the overall trend, which is uh, towards expansion. And and Maine, somebody was talking about what's going on in Maine. Yes, there were oral arguments today. Um, the ad, uh, pro-Medicaid expansion advocates are suing uh, the governor for refusing to expand Medicaid, even though the population voted overwhelmingly to do so. In all November. The, all the way back in November. Uh, they're suing now because uh, the governor had to basically submit the paperwork and make it happen, and he's refusing to do so. Um, he is out of office this fall. We'll see what happens first, his, him being term limited out of office or this court case. <laughs> um, so, Do we know when we expect to hear about this court case? A couple weeks. Uh, Maine Equal Justice Partners is representing the plaintiffs. All right. Well, well meanwhile, um, when we Sarah mentioned work requirements, uh, uh, Michigan's plan to exempt some people from its new work requirement for Medicaid uh, was 
people were concerned about it. They were afraid it was racially discriminatory because on the whole, white people would be exempt. They live in the counties with high unemployment rates uh, and people of color wouldn't be because even though some of the cities have high unemployment rates, the counties that they're located in don't. Michigan has reportedly backed off of that part of its proposal. But Allison, you're going to do your extra credit early this week. You've been looking at this and discovered that Michigan's not the only state with this problem, right? It is not the only state with this problem. Um, I, I think it is interesting that they did back down after this widespread backlash. And the reason that they gave for backing down, um, the authors of these bills are saying we're not backing down because of these claims that it would be racially discriminatory, possibly violating federal law, having a disparate impact by race in a federal program. Uh, They're saying that they're backing down because tracking the exemptions and the unemployment rates in each county would have been too difficult administratively, (laughs) to which (laughs) you said earlier, well, that's kind of the point of Medicaid work requirements is to make it difficult for people to jump through hoops and get Medicaid. <laughs> yeah, and that's I mean going back to Kentucky, the the first state with with the the work requirement, they they estimate that that many fewer people will have Medicaid not because they don't work or look for work or otherwise meet the requirements, but because they will be unable to complete the paperwork that would um keep them on the rolls. I also thought it was interesting that the the author of the original bill with the uh uh racially disparate Medicaid work requirement impact was saying that it it can't be racist because people in Detroit uh, could still access jobs in other parts of the county, which is making all kinds of assumptions about people's access to transportation and resources. So I thought that was interesting as well. And it's a really big county. So I did a story uh, with my colleague Emily Badger about this debate because I think it's actually really interesting. You know, the idea of the work requirement, or at least the idea that uh, CMS has been making, is that this is going to be a meaningful incentive that's going to push people into work. It's going to lift them out of poverty. It's going to improve their health. It's going to achieve the goals of the Medicaid program. And if you really believe that, if you really think a work requirement is a good thing, then you have to think really carefully about who should be exempted. And uh, the idea of this exemption, you know, while it appears that it would have racially disparate effects because of the particular political geography of Michigan, but the idea is that Well, there's some places where it's really hard to get a job, and so it's not reasonable to expect people to fulfill this kind of requirement, and we should have an exception. And I just want to say that if there weren't these administrative uh, problems, and if the goal really was to address that problem, there are other units of geography that Michigan could use. And so I think that the people who are arguing against this policy as being kind of a racist policy really just don't like the work requirements, uh, because... The reason why this has a racially disparate effect is because in Michigan, there are cities that have high unemployment rates, are relatively poor, and have a lot of African-American and other minority residents that happen to be located within counties that have richer suburbs. If you took the cities out and made them into their own geographic units, so if you could imagine Detroit is its own unit, Detroit would qualify for the exemption. So you could get around this. I think actually really what this debate is about is – who should be exempt from work requirements? And what is the right unit of measurement for determining who should be exempt? Should it be made at a geographic and an economic level and saying, there just are no jobs, it's not reasonable to expect anyone who lives here to fulfill this requirement. Although well, isn't, isn't the idea of the, the work requirement community engagement? That's what yes. they say. <laughs> That's what I and heard And so even week. if there's no jobs, one would presume that every county would be able to, to create some community engagement activities for these people because it's supposedly not as much about actual work as it is about 
giving something back. That, I think that's true. And I, I think actually I think Alice wrote an excellent story um, highlighting this problem. But let's just take the simplest case. Let's think about it just as a work requirement, because I do think that a lot of the rhetoric surrounding it is about work and how work is ennobling and work is poverty reducing. And, and that's really paid work that is poverty reducing. So the ultimate goal is that people will have jobs. People who can't find jobs, at least theoretically, could do these other things in order to comply. Uh, then you have to think about, OK, well, is the geographic, you know, your economy is bad, so then we're going to give you an exemption? Or should it be your individual circumstances are bad, and therefore we should give you an exemption? And, you know, there's opportunities for discrimination actually in both kinds of determination. If if it's all left to your individual circumstances and you as an individual Medicaid beneficiary have to sit across the desk from a welfare officer and tell them all about your challenges with childcare and the job search that you have that's not working and your car broke down and whatever else, and that person gets to decide, okay, you get an exemption, you don't. I think, you know, there there are risks of, of discrimination there, too, because that involves individual judgments. And that's actually sort of a less neutral way of making that determination. It's it's sort of more fine tuned, but it has it has risks, too. And so this whole question of how do you exempt people is interesting. And I, you know, I have to bring it back to New Hampshire, which has an individual exemption for if you've experienced inclement weather, which is an <laughs> example of like, you know, whose snowstorm counts. Yeah, exactly. Although I, I just will say um when I was reporting out that story, folks in different states were were raising that um, the segregation in the city versus county, it, it's not uh, that's not a naturally created thing. That is a legacy of decades and decades of racist policies, redlining and different funding going to different places and white flight. And so basing the uh, work requirement exemption on the county level, the advocates were telling me, is sort of doubling down on that racially disparate impact instead of attempting to address it. We'll have to, to see how this goes, because apparently it's, it's we're, we're looking at it in a number of states. It, it turns out this the whole Medicaid work requirement thing, as as with all health care, more complicated than it looks at first. So that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our Bill of the Month. Here is the segment. Joining us today with our Bill of the Month is my KHN colleague, Liz Zabo. Liz, this month tells the story of an Oklahoma woman whose foot surgery involved the placing of four teeny tiny screws in two of her toes, and those screws turned out to be very, very expensive. So, Liz, let's start with the patient. Who is she, and why did she need this surgery? Her name was Sherry Young, and she had some arthritis and a lot of pain in her foot. So her doctor actually shortened a couple of her middle toes and then reconnected them with these four teeny tiny screws. She never would have come to realize how much the screws cost if her entire insurance claim wasn't initially denied, right? Right. Unbeknownst to her, her insurance company had denied uh, her doctor's request for an inpatient surgery. And then she went ahead and had the surgery. They kept her overnight. And then she found out a little while later that they were denying it. So she went ahead and started calling the hospital and asking, why is this bill $115,000 for two relatively simple surgeries? And you should mention what the other surgery was for. She got a shoulder surgery as well. And uh, so she actually requested and received an itemized copy of all the charges um, down to the number of details like uh, charging her for saline and drill bits and every little thing. That's right. It wasn't just the screws that were so expensive, right? 
Right. I mean, even drill bits and saws and all these really basic mechanical pieces were pretty expensive. And the screws cost how much? About $3,700 each. And these are obviously more sophisticated screws than you would put in your garden shed. But they are, in essence... Or your eyeglasses. They were probably that size, right? Right, right. Yeah, they were about 2.8 millimeters, so teeny tiny little devices. And they're definitely better than your average screw, but they are ultimately just screws. They weren't bionic screws. They didn't have microchips. They're just screws. Well, she obviously wasn't able to find out anything about why they cost so much. What were you able to find out about why they cost so much? Yeah, she she was really pretty motivated. Uh, she found out the manufacturer, and she called the manufacturer, and they said, we need to know the part number. And she actually tried to get the hospital to give her the part number. Uh, they wouldn't. We called the manufacturer, and they gave us a range. Uh, they said, well, we can't tell you exactly, but normally these screws are no more than $300 at most $1,000. So that even seemed like, you know, is that as far as we can dig? We we called a, a rival generic surgical part manufacturer and they said, listen, these screws are really only about $30 to manufacture. So you have markups from $30 to $300 to $3,700 by the time the hospital is charging the patient. As you mentioned, that wasn't the only thing that was sort of eye-popping on her bill. The drill bit cost, what, $4,000? Yeah, a lot of the surgical equipment is designed to be disposable, so they actually charge you, which is really different because when I have a handyman come and fix my toilet, he he doesn't charge me for the plunger. He doesn't charge me for the hammer. He reuses it, and it's his. But as a patient, you could be on the hook for paying for the actual saw that they cut your foot with. <laughs> and and do they not use it again? I mean, do they actually dispose of the saw? Yeah, I am not an expert on FDA regulations on this. Uh, it may be that in that they're due to try to prevent germs. Um, the FDA may regulate what can be reused. But there's certainly a lot of pieces, doctors say, um, that can be sterilized and and used again, you know, forceps and scalpels or scissors are commonly used more than once. But a lot of these surgical pieces now come in kits, and the kits are sort of sold um, all in one kit, and then it's disposed of, and you get charged for it. So what happened in the end? Did she have to pay this, what was a $115,000 hospital bill? Yeah, her insurer was a a Blue Cross Blue Shield of Oklahoma, went back and forth a couple different times. And in the end, the hospital ended up just uh, adjusting her bill and taking away the $115,000 charge. We tried to ask the hospital why, and they didn't tell us what happened. So we don't know uh, exactly why they ended up essentially writing off the bill. But luckily for her, she did not have to pay it. And that's what she was happy about. Although there was, as I recall, like a $400 charge for her appeal, right? That was that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. When we looked at the most recent copy of her billing statement, um, since she had appealed the bill, there was a $413 charge for a denied appeal. So if you're unhappy with your care or your bill, you can appeal it, but the hospital will charge you for the appeal. Awesome. Liz, thank you very much, and we look forward to the next Bill of the Month. Great. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Alice, you've already done yours this week. Margot, why don't you go next? 
I wanted to recommend a story in the New York Times by my colleague Gina Collada, where she was looking at some cancer researchers who were really hoping to undertake a very big project to try to understand people who have tumors with various genetic markers, what kinds of treatments had they had, what had they responded to, and try to create some kind of big data that would enable them to better understand how to target therapies to people whose cancers have particular genetic characteristics. And that sound, seemed like a great idea. And the genetic testing, you know, is available and is relatively widespread. But it turned out that there was this huge problem, which is that everyone's health records are such a mess, so disparate, so uh, uninteroperable is the term, um, that it was almost impossible to figure out, like, what treatments people had gotten and how to connect them with the genetic markers for their tumors. And I think it's just it was just another reminder of how bad the system is. But it was it felt like a really high stakes reminder of that, that the fact that we have this hodgepodge of paper and digital records that don't talk to each other, that are not shared in any general way, and you have people going to various different providers, each of whom have some different record keeping system, uh, is not just a personal inconvenience to those of us who are trying to run around collecting our records, but it is an impediment to research that could improve human health. Sarah? Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to plug my own story this week, which, which is, was very good. <laughs> thank you. Um, the latest in the series I've been doing on emergency room billing, this one looking at out-of-network billing at in-network facilities and focused on a patient in Texas who um, woke up at an – luckily, an ambulance took him to an in-network hospital, woke up. Um, he had been violently attacked, left unconscious, um, and woke up in a hospital with staples in his head and his jaw broken in two places – uh, because this is the United States, the first thing he does is gets on his iPhone and tries to figure out if this hospital is a network. It is. He thinks things are fine. But it turns out the oral surgeon who does emergency surgery on his jaw is not in network and sends him an $8,000 bill for those services. Um, so this is, you know, looking at one of these issues that's really hard to navigate. Um, you know, I'm trying to navigate this myself as I'm getting ready to have a baby at an in-network facility, but trying to figure out if the anesthesiologists and the pediatricians and all those people involved are, are going to be in-network. It picks up on work that Margot and her colleagues have done looking at how outs outsourcing of staffing at emergency rooms seems to be leading to some pretty high surprise bills. And um, I think one of the things I found most interesting reporting this is that there actually are a about two dozen laws in states across the country that try to protect against them. But so few people know about these laws that they often don't get used. The patient I wrote about was actually eligible for protection under a Texas law. He had just never heard of it. I had never heard of it before until I started reporting on it. Um, and I think that is something, you know, that you, you, having these protections on the books doesn't always mean consumers know that they are protected. Missouri just passed a law in this last week. So, Missouri and, listeners, <laughs> you know your rights. And, and yes. you got you started asking questions, and they dropped the bill for this they did. guy. So, um, <laughs> in most cases, I've reported the bill has bills have been dropped, um, which is great for these particular patients, but probably not a great way to run a healthcare system. <laughs> and it's, I think it's it's also a sign that that these providers don't really feel like the bills are justifiable under the slightest bit of scrutiny. Yes. <laughs> right. And it's, I, it is interesting to me. He didn't even try and charge anything. And I was not arguing in this piece, like, he should not be paid something for repairing someone's jaw. But, um, yes, it, it was just dropped completely and no longer exists. 
Well, on speaking, uh, mine is along the same lines. Uh, it's a story uh, on our Kaiser Health News website by David Tuller, who's a journalism professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and it's about dental insurance, or more accurately, insufficient dental insurance. If you don't already know this from literally painful experience, most dental coverage is the exact opposite of most medical coverage. It pays for routine stuff, but if you need something expensive, you might have to take out a second mortgage on your house. Um, he's fine, hardly the first person to point this out. Out, but his point mirrors um, something else about the U.S. health system writ large, which is that other countries also handle dental insurance like this, a lot of them, which is that, you know, they pay for routine stuff, but they don't necessarily pay for the expensive stuff. But only here, if you have to pay out of pocket, uh, will you, could you literally go broke? In other countries, you might have to pay out of pocket, but you could probably afford it. Um, so yet yet another place where the, the health care system doesn't work perhaps as well as most of us would like. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sarah Cliff. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.